Let's go ahead and get started, if we might. I'd like to open in prayer first. Almighty God, we thank you so very much for this opportunity to come together with people of like minds and like passion. We thank you for the fact that uh, there are so many things going on in your name. We pray that you would give us direction and discernment as to what we would do in your name. pray that you'll be with this lecture today, uh, that you would um, help uh, it stick where it's necessary. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Uh, this afternoon at 5 o'clock, the uh, PACS, uh, the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons, we're going to be meeting up in um, uh, 209 on the top uh, area on the other side of the chapel. So if you want to grab your supper and join us, we have five or six of the uh, program directors here, which is unusual to have that many here in the States. We'll give you a chance to talk to them. It's going to be just kind of an informal uh, good time, so you're welcome. Uh, we're going to be talking today about uh, acute abdominal pain in the, uh, in the tropics uh, from a surgical standpoint. Uh, I'm the executive director of the Pan-African Academy of Christian Surgeons, and I have uh, been spending the majority of the last 14 years uh, in the developing world and work at 50 or so mission hospitals. And so what we're going to talk about today is not so much uh, the exact how-tos, but the way to change your mindset. It would help me to know who here is what, so I can aim this at the right level. How many of you are uh, certified surgeons? Okay, good. Now you can come and take take this lecture over from this point on. I'll sit down. Uh, how many are uh, residents in surgery? Okay. Uh, residents in any other specialty? Okay. Uh, medical students, uh, undergraduate, the rest. Okay, good. So, sorry? Nurses, yes, absolutely. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, the reality is, of course, is that surgery in the developing world is a little different than the United States uh, and the developed world. We have differing diseases. Many of the things that we're going to talk about are things that you recognize, but the prevalence changes. Uh, some things are much more common. Some things are much less common. Uh, of course, one of the real realities is that when they come in, uh, you know, in trauma, we talk about the golden hour. Uh, when we talk about trauma in Africa, we talk about the tarnished three days. Uh, it, you know, they're, they're coming in late. Uh, the disease is far advanced. And, of course, a lot of times we don't have the diagnostic or the therapeutic uh, components to take care of this. Uh, many of them have had to walk a long ways because they don't have enough caregivers and their limited resources. And we're going to try to take that into common. And so there are certain diseases that uh, you may get very familiar with here in North America, but you really won't see in most of the developing world. Diverticulitis Diverticulitis would be a fine example of that. Uh, I think I've seen two cases in 14 years overseas, whereas I would have seen them, you know, two a month in my practice here in the United States. Acute and chronic cholecystitis is highly variable. It's a disease that almost doesn't exist in most of Africa, although admittedly, as they're getting fat like we are, it's, uh, it's increasing. Uh, of course, Asia has a predilection for it because of the way that they handle cholesterol in their bile, so they see it quite frequently. So it depends on where you are, what you expect to see. Appendicitis, uh, very, very uncommon in certain areas. Fascinatingly enough, you would think that might have something to do with the fiber in the diet, but that's not necessarily true. Uh, we'll see a lot of appendicitis in some of our institutions. Uh, in, we have 10 training programs. In some of them, they'll do appendicitis, you know, literally every week. In others, literally, it's a chief resident case because they never see it. Don't know that I can explain that, but it's, it, it changes. You have to know where you're working. And, of course, small bowel obstruction in the United States is adhesions, 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 and that's relatively uncommon in some of the areas. Uh, the diseases that are much more common, things like primary peritonitis. Most of you have probably not even seen a case of primary peritonitis, and yet uh, we'll see it fairly often over there. We'll talk uh, a little bit more about that. Uh, perforated duodenal ulcers here where everybody is on a meprazole. 
uh, or taking some sort of over-the-counter thing. We don't see perforated ulcers that commonly, and yet we'll see them right, uh, right frequently uh, uh, there. Uh, volvulus, uh, that is the third leading cause for uh, large bowel obstruction in the United States, but it's the leading cause in most of uh, the developing world. We'll talk about that a little bit. Adult intussusception, again, it's relatively uncommon, more common there. Uh, tuberculous peritonitis, most of us in the United States haven't seen that, uh, but we'll see it relatively commonly depending on where we are. And then the pig bell, we'll talk about that a little bit later on. So uh, there's three uh, studies uh, that have kind of looked at that at some point. In Ghana, they have appendicitis, and so that was actually their leading diagnosis uh, for surgery, uh, and then followed that by perforated typhoid, and then everything went way after that. Uh, at Bangalo, which is in Gabon, uh, Gabon is kind of in the, as you know, Africa is shaped like a comma. Gabon is in the armpit, uh, literally and figuratively sometimes. Um, they saw many more incarcerated or strangulated hernias. Uh, appendicitis was relatively common there as well, but they saw volvulus, uh, some adhesive small bowel obstruction, perforated typhoid. At Tenwick, going over near the Rift Valley in Kenya, uh, they saw volvulus as their leading cause, and then they have appendicitis at that particular hospital, perforated peptic ulcer disease, trauma, typhoid, SBO as well. In the United States, we often say, that, remember that hoofbeats are horses, not zebras. Well, here they're zebras, they're not horses, okay? And so keep that in mind as you look at it. Um, so... Looking at small bowel obstruction, uh, what are the leading causes here? In this area, it's hernias, hernias, and hernias. Uh, if you have a country in which there are no surgeons, oddly enough, there's little surgery. And so they don't have a lot of adhesions, and so that goes down. We'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, Ascariasis, uh, adhesive small bowel obstruction, uh, it's actually adhesions becomes number three, and then these others. And we're going to go from those. Now, one of the realities is, is that... Um, it's very, very common to have hernias. There's a genetic tendency, especially in Africa, for hernias, especially in West Africa. And uh, a lot of times uh, we don't do complete physical examinations. I know in the United States that we order CBC, UA, and CAT scan. But in uh, the uh, Africa, you actually have to do a physical examination. And a lot of times you'll find a small hernia that you didn't appreciate. And that's really the cause of your small bowel obstruction. Not all of them come in with these kind of hernias. These are fairly obvious. Most of the time you'll pick those up. Ironically, they don't cause you obstruction as a general rule. The other thing is that we find is that unusual hernias are a little bit more common, especially in the um, malnourished or low-protein folks. Uh, obturator hernias, uh, femoral hernias, things that are a little uncommon for us here, actually go up fairly uh, commonly there. Um, Ascariasis, I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. Uh, just a brief comment about adhesive small bowel obstruction. Uh, basically, as surgery is becoming more common, uh, then we are seeing it in Africa in those areas. So around the big cities, uh, if you're around Nairobi or something, it might be possible. Uh, obviously, looking for a scar helps. Uh, however, in areas where sexually transmitted disease and you have just ungodly pelvic inflammatory disease, uh, that's a cause as well. Uh, talk just briefly about peritoneal tuberculosis, because frankly, there's not a whole lot you can do about it except make the diagnosis. Um, 15 to 20% of these patients will have concomitant pulmonary TB, and of course uh, that generally means that they're usually infective, so keep that in mind as you're uh, examining and taking care of these patients. Uh, there's really two forms for those of you that haven't seen it. There is an acute form, people that come in with an acute abdomen, 
Um, and uh, exactly why it's acute is not terribly clear to me, uh, but they will have ascites. Often when you examine them, you find these little salt and pepper kind of granules. They don't, it's not really encased, it's just all these granules everywhere, so it's an acute inflammatory process with these scattered tubercles. Uh, interesting enough, often the omentum is the one thing that's totally uh, involved with this, so you get this thickened, whitish, odd-looking omentum. It really looks like carcinomatosis. Uh, for those of you that are used to seeing like a pancreatic or ovarian carcinomatosis, that's what it is. It looks like these little spreads everywhere. In the chronic form, what happens there? They get really a peritoneal fibrosis, an encasement. And so you open it up and you see some ascites and the small intestine is in a bag of scar. And uh, basically, it's just a matter of making that diagnosis because you cannot do an adhesiolysis on those. It's a matter of keeping them alive long enough nutritionally, which, of course, without hyperalimentation is difficult for the drugs to start to kick in. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about this uh, volvulus from a small bowel standpoint. Uh, you remember that the most common thing for a small bowel volvulus is associated with malrotation, a congenital abnormality. The intestine is formed outside your abdomen. And as it moves back in, it's supposed to do that 270-degree counter-revolutionary turn so that your ligament of trice is supposed to end up here to the left of your uh, vertebral column, your cecum down here, so you have everything spread over a six-inch area. Uh, when kids present with small bowel obstruction, it's often malrotation. And uh, the thing that's important uh, about that is making that diagnosis very, very, very early because otherwise, if it turns gangrenous, You've lost your entire small gut, and, and there's no way that these kids can survive that as well. So uh, on occasion, we'll see it in adults, a small bowel volvulus by itself. There's nothing specific about that. But it's almost always in areas that have a high worm bur a burden. And what happens is the ascaris grows into such a ball of worms that the weight literally flips it. Okay, And so uh, making that diagnosis, particularly if they come in with a small bowel obstruction, you can feel a mass down there. Uh, that would suggest that that's something that you'd want to get on, operated on relatively early with that. Uh, in the susception, the only thing I'm going to mention about that, of course, is under three years of age, uh, you want to do a hydrostatic reduction, taking them to the operating room, now the pro or to the uh, radiology suite. The problem with that is, in many of the mission hospitals, we don't have any barium. And besides that, the fluoro hasn't worked in years, if we had one. And so that's problematic. And so what do we do about that? There's actually two things that are becoming more popular over the last decade or so, and uh, that is if you're good enough with an ultrasound that you can actually find the intussusception, you can actually reduce it with either air. You literally, what they do, what is recommended is they put a chest tube um, container with the two tubes in it. You put a hundred, one meter above it water and just let the water run in one side and that forces the air out the other side and you can actually reduce it that way. Now the problem with air on ultrasound is that often that screws up your visualization. So they have been doing using uh, saline and you can do the same thing. A, a one liter uh, head, put a monitor on it with a little Y so that you know actually what the pressure is. You don't want to exceed 120 millimeters of um, uh, mercury uh, with this. And you can actually, with the water, and often watch it reduce with that. So it's a nice trick that's coming out there if you've got an ultrasound and if you have any idea how to use the ultrasound to make this happen. Uh, so uh, that's a good option. Now I want to talk a little bit about large ball obstruction. The differential diagnosis here is a little bit smaller. It's volvulus and volvulus, and then there's volvulus, and then there's uh, carcinoma. It's almost virtually never diverticulitis. Uh, we do see in some areas, especially in South Africa and so forth, where um, 
lymphogranularum venerum is causing a rectal stricture. You'll occasionally see that there, but that's relatively uncommon. Uh, over 50% of the cases of large bowel obstruction are volvulus. Uh, it is related to the amount of fiber in their diet, so there's a volvulus belt all the way across China, India, and into Africa where volvulus is much more common. Now, interestingly enough, even within those areas, though, you will find areas where volvulus is very common. You do it all the time in other cases where they don't see it. So there's something else going on there that we don't understand. It may be a genetic component to it. It may be, have something to do with the, the shape of your sigmoid versus the mesentery, etc., uh, but what is almost, uh, it never is, is diverticulitis. That's really unusual. And uh, colon cancer, we all um, heard the, the story about fiber and uh, Dr. Burkett at, uh, at uh, Macquarie University in Kampala and his whole big thing about fiber and all this stuff and how they don't see colon cancer. And basically, I think that's nonsense. Uh, what's happening is that the colon cancer is skyrocketing in Africa. So while fiber might be part of it, it's been oversold a bit, and we're seeing more and more colon cancer uh, showing up in Africa as well. Part of it's dietary, without a doubt. So I got some cases here that we're just going to, not going to go into a lot of detail, but this is a 42-year-old male. He's had a history of occasionally smoking, occasionally drinking. Uh, would do more of both if he could afford it, uh, but can't. Um, he presents with acute abdominal pain. It's more severe in the upper quadrants, um, maybe epigastric, maybe not. It's unclear. It's been 16 hours since he had this pain because he had to take a while to find the money to get on the taxi to come here. And uh, when you saw him, he was tachycardic, he was tachypnic, and he had a nearly rigid abdomen. And for a surgeon, of course, a rigid abdomen means you can stand on it. Uh, so this is an impressive abdomen, and we got this x-ray. Can anybody give us a diagnosis on this x-ray? Yeah, you've got a pneumoperitoneum, and with this story, it's a perforated ulcer, perforated ulcer, and perforated ulcer. I want to talk a little bit about that. We see that much more commonly, and there's a, um, it's something that even as general practitioners, often you'll be doing these kinds of operations because it's a relatively simple, simple operation. Uh, at least 10% of these patients have never had any previous symptoms, and in some series, it's 30, 40, and 50% that they came in, they've had no problems whatsoever, and all of a sudden they're acutely ill. And that's actually what gives you your best clue with that. Only about 10% of them have melana, uh, blood in their stool, and that's relatively minor. And that's, of course, they perforate anteriorly, and the gastroduodenal ulcer is posteriorly. So if they're going to they do have a posterior perforation, they present with massive amounts of bleeding. If they do anteriorly, they usually don't bleed enough to do that. And over 90% of them have a pneumoperitoneum. And so the point is, is while the x-ray is a good clue, and if it's positive, it's helpful, but if it is negative, go on your clinical presentation and keep examining them and keep getting x-rays until you're sure they're either better or worse. They will do one or the other, I promise you. Um, now, the operation is relatively simple. All we really do is put a big stitch in there and put a wad of momentum on top of it to plug it. And that's the gram omental patch, and that's fairly easy. Uh, what we don't do is try to do definitive surgery, uh, partly because it's a contaminated mess and you just run the risk of having all, all sorts of complications. And the real reality is increasingly we don't need it. Now, a lot of people say, well, you know, they're not really sick. Can I just watch them? Sure. But you have to watch, watch them very, very closely. Okay. And so certainly if you think this is what's going on, uh, presumptive antibiotics of broad spectrum for the stomach uh, and... Uh, put an G tube down them and watch them, and you'll get by with about 10% of them that you don't have to operate on as well as long as they're not sick. But the minute they have a real peritonitis, 
you're going to have to operate on them and go from there. What we do know, however, is make your decision in the first 12 hours because the people that come in more than 12 hours after perforation, their morbidity starts to skyrocket at that point. So uh, if they're going to need surgery, you want early surgery rather than late surgery. Only about 50% of these patients who have healed up from their ulcers will ever have recurrent ulcer symptoms, which is kind of fascinating. And that data goes back even before we treat everybody with H. pylori. With H. pylori, it goes way down after that. However, H. pylori is not a magic answer for everybody. Most people will not require symptoms, and therefore, uh, for those of you that are old enough to remember the post-vagotomy syndromes and the post-gastrectomy syndromes, they were the worst things we ever did to patients, and they're having diarrhea and emptying and uh, afferent loop syndromes and all the other stuff. So we'd really like not to operate on them. And most of the time, what we'll do, even uh, in the best of places, is go ahead and treat them, treat them with H. pylori and hope that that works. Now, one of the problems that you have is that H. pylori makes, uh, treatment makes a great number of your patients ill. And so actually getting them to complete the course is a problem. In Africa, in particular, where you can go down to the market and buy a blue pill and a green pill, we have lots of resistance problems, okay? And so one of the things that's very important to realize is that wherever you're working, you have to know whether or not people are still sensitive to metronidazole and whether they're still sensitive to colithromycin or not, and that will help you make your, your choice. Now, do realize that the very best of H. pylori treatments is only about 80% effective, and then we have to go to the second line, which in virtually every mission hospital I've been in, we don't have. Okay, so uh, we end up operating on some of these patients a little bit more. Okay, here's another case. Uh, we're now in Papua New Guinea on the east side of the island, and we're in the highlands. And uh, this is in the summertime during the dry season, and they had a pig feast as part of one of their celebrations five days earlier. This five-year-old boy came in with a four-day history of uh, fever, nausea, diarrhea, and intermittent cramps. And every time he ate, he got worse. You do a white count, 14,400. You do this x-ray. And while you can't really see it, all you see is some air scattered about. There's no pneumatosis, no pneumoperitoneum. Uh, the abdomen was initially relatively unimpressive. Okay, It wasn't a surgical abdomen. What's your diagnosis? It's likely to be pig bell. Okay? Now, what in the world is pig bell? Okay? Of course, that's uh, pigeon for pig belly. Uh, caused uh, with that as well. Uh, what you would do with this patient then at this point is put him on nasogastric tube. You'd put him on broad-spectrum antibiotics, and you make him NPO. And when you look at the NG2, so this dark-looking, nasty stuff comes out of there. And uh, they have diarrhea, and it looks dark and nasty as well. And I always love it when they say diarrhea smells bad. I think it always smells bad. I don't know. And uh, the abdomen gets worse. So what are you going to do with, at that point? Operate, of course. Everybody operates. I mean, that's the right thing to do. Uh, this is enterocolitis necrotans. Um, we saw it uh, first in uh, medieval Europe uh, during the famines. And then in World War II, we saw it again uh, after the starvation of the, the Germans and the migrating groups of people at that particular point. And uh, there it was called Darmbrandt or, or gut fire, okay, because these people just have this excruciating abdominal pain without much else. It came back to light in the 1960s in Papua New Guinea. And uh, at that time, they were actually able to come up with a vaccine, and it's almost disappeared. But as with all good common sense, 
Once it's disappeared, we quit making the vaccine. We haven't changed the culture. It's coming back again. And so this can occur any place where, number one, you have severe protein malnourishment, and number two, you have pigs. Uh, and those are the two things that are associated with it. Uh, just to tell you a little bit about it, it's uh, a male-predominated disease, not because there's any genetic component to it, but because, of course, the males get the, the, the good meals and the women get whatever's left, okay? And so it affects the males first because they overeat and are stuffed. Uh, 70% of the cases are under the age of 10, and uh, you do see it occasionally in adults. And it's in the dry season only because you can have a season and you don't have pig roasts in the middle of the rain. That doesn't make any sense. So it's in the dry season. It's actually clostridium perfringens, okay, but it's a type C. Uh, type A, of course, is clostridium welchii, and that's tetanus. And we're thinking It's the same kind of exotoxin or the same process, but it's found in soil. It's found in pig's uh, stool, human stool. And uh, one of the problems is in the highland, of course, the higher you get, the lower your boiling temperature is, and so you can't kill the spores because the water literally boils before it. the spores are killed. And um, so what's interesting is that this uh, Clostridia actually uh, replicates inside your GI tract, and as it does so, produces a beta toxin. Now, they have four classifications. It's interesting because uh, the surgery surgeons must have done this because they called type 1 the surgical disease. Type 4 is actually they come in, they've got a grapey stomach, whether you make the diagnosis, who, who knows. Uh, type 3 uh, is a subclinical uh, surgical, and this is a problem because these are people who had it, survived it, and now have residual stenoses and strictures, kind of like the necrotizing enterocolitis. If any of you have taken uh, care of little kids, they'll get the strictures later. This is what this disease is. The problem is the mortality at this stage is 49%. That's a scary number, and it's largely because you're operating on malnourished people, and we don't have any way to... To affect it. Type 1 is the acute toxic. They come in, they obviously got something really bad, and you go in there and you just resect everything and hope they live. Uh, type 2 are the people that present um, uh, with uh, the more serious complications as well. Um, it can present usually within 48 hours. It can present as much as a week later. Uh, they have the things that we talked about. They're gassy, they're colicky pain, they've got this burning epigastric pain that goes along with it. They're dehydrated. They're obviously sick. Uh, the pain is consistent like with a lot of other ischemic disease. The pain is worse than your exam seems to make it, but these people are just miserable. Their gut's on fire, literally. And then as they get older, it's the strictures that go along with it. So what's really important with this is you have to have a high index of suspicion. You have to know what goes on in this area. Uh, early intervention is critical. Um, they will have a leukocytosis that's very high. There is a serologic test that exists, but it only exists, you know, at the CDC level, and so it's uh, virtually impossible for you uh, in most of the places that you work. Uh, you can do anaerobic clostridial cultures, a lot of those in the mission hospitals, okay? <laughs> that ain't going to happen. Uh, you, and you can see bloody ascites on uh, ultrasound. It's really more a clinical diagnosis as well. How do you fix these folks? You correct their electrolyte abnormalities, you rehydrate them, and you operate on them. Uh, when necessary. Uh, be sure, of course, we've got to have some sort of drug, chloramphenicol, crystal and penicillin, high dose, um, metronidazole, something aimed at the clostridia that goes along with it. Interestingly enough, um, ascariasis seems to precipitate this disease as well, and so we treat the ascariasis that goes along with it as well. Uh, exactly the mechanism is unclear. Of course, we're often in malarial areas, and while that isn't related, you have to treat them both. Um, there is an anti-serum that you can never find. 
Uh, you could give them hyperalimentation, but you don't have that either. So the real answer is make the diagnosis, operate on them, and then really pray a lot as you give the best care that you can get. Um, I wanted to show you some of these pictures just because it's an unusual disease. These pictures come from Jim Radcliffe, who's at the uh, Kujip Hospital in, in Highland uh, uh, of Papua New Guinea. And uh, so you have these, uh, when you operate on them, they have these massive lymph nodes that are associated with it. Uh, they have the so-called tiger striping. I don't know if it shows up real well, but you can see the stripes on the outside of the gut. That's uh, highly suggestive of it as well. It classically is skip lesion like it is with necrotizing intercolitis. So it'll be one area of gut that's affected, a normal and an infected area that goes along with it. Uh, if you open one up, this is probably not the best way to make the diagnosis, but if you open one up, you'll see these uh, linear ulcerations that go along with it and actually kind of correlate to that tiger striping that we talked about. All right, let's switch to another condition. Uh, those of you that have spent a lot of time in the developing world have already made this diagnosis without knowing anything because you recognize the face, okay? This is a typical facies. Uh, but this is a 10-year-old Togolese boy uh, who presents during the dry season. He's had a history of fever and malaise. He's had intermittent nausea and diarrhea. He's been sick for a couple of weeks. He was treated for malaria. Uh, he went to a local clinic area. He was worsened, he got worse about 48 hours ago, and they finally brought him in. He hasn't eaten since then. What's his diagnosis? That face is classic. Yes, typhoid. It's up there, you guys. Come on. All right. So, uh, typhoid fever is enteric fever. It's a, a salmonella uh, enterica. It's a cerevar uh, typhi. Uh, there are a couple of para typhoids that can give you a very similar disease. It's poor sanitation. There is a general rule they are drinking out of the sewer. Okay, that's where they're getting their water, and that's why it's seasonal. It's when the dry season. During the wet season, we don't see typhoid very much. We see it during the dry season. This thing is taking off on its own. All right, good. Uh, this is a picture from uh, John Tarpley on one of his papers. And the point here that I'd like to, to mention is that... Sorry is that uh, you can be sick for several days and you really don't get into this ulceration and perforation until about day 21. The symptoms are highly variable, nausea, vomiting, but they don't have diarrhea always. They don't always have uh, blood in their stools. Uh, it's, a, again, a clinical diagnosis that goes along with it. It's usually a four-week disease in which uh, week one and two is that fever, malaise, I don't feel good, and so you can't really tell it from malaria. As a matter of fact, one of the more common diagnoses that you'll see in the clinics in Africa is typhoid malaria. I have no idea what that means, but it's a wonderful concept, and they treat them both for, for both and try to, try to solve it. Uh, but a lot of times, because of the fact that everybody has brought their medicines down at the market, they're resistant, so it doesn't really work as well. It's really not till week three that we see the classic typhoidal state. And that classic heavy-lidded look, they, they, you saw that kid just look sick with a heavy, that's a classic typhoid facies. You can make that diagnosis from across the room and you'll be right 98% of the time with it. Uh, at this stage, that can actually affect because they're so dehydrated and so septic that their mentation goes down, they're, they're groggy, they don't uh, do well, and they're toxic. They are sick. Now, if they're lucky and don't perforate, they begin to get better uh, at that point. Um, one of the things that's fascinating with typhoid, for those of you who are not seeing it, is it actually has a low white count. And a high white count uh, is relatively unusual. It's a sign of perforation, but often at that point they're actually so septic they remain leukopenic. And so they'll have a very low white count that goes along with it. Now, the best way to make this diagnosis is a culture. 
culture of either the stool, the blood, or the bone marrow. Okay? Nothing else is reliable. And everybody says, oh, no, but you don't understand it. We have a Weedall test. Okay? The Weedall test is a very nonspecific test. It is good for um, looking at convalescent serums and looking at populations who's have been exposed to the disease, etc. But as a test itself, in the acute situation, it approaches value of zero. Okay? And so what I do to save money, the Weedall test usually costs about a dollar. And so what I like to do is I like to keep wherever I am, I'll take a one-shilling note or a one-franc uh, coin or something, and this is the test. Now, watch carefully. You do, yep, they got it or don't got it. It's equally accurate, okay? It's a clinical diagnosis. The Weedall test is a waste of money for everybody involved. And so, unfortunately, if you don't have cultures, you end up treating on a clinical basis as well. So it's every bit as cheap, every bit as accurate. What is the most important thing here? The most important thing here is aggressive resuscitation. These people are really sick. They've had two or three weeks of nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. You have to get their electrolytes squared away. You have to get their fluid status squared away. But one of the most important things that is remembering is that if they've perforated, they have not just salmonella, but they have the entire GI flora in there. So it's a triple antibiotic kind of equivalent, or if you're lucky and have one of the gorillacillins uh, available, you might want to use one of those. But as a general, you've got to cover everything. And the most important thing to do is sharing the gospel. Uh, one of the people here who's uh, one of my heroes, uh, I remember a story. He's a, a well-trained uh, University of uh, Michigan-trained general surgeon, superb. And he had a young boy that came in. And he did a full class resuscitation. He even had to put a central line in and uh, did a full resuscitation, took it to the operating room, found several perforations, cleaned it out, did a radical debridement of the peritoneum, uh, sewed it back together and put him in the operating room, or in the recovery room. And the nurse came up to him and says, Bob, why'd you do that? He says, well, what do you mean? You don't understand. I just did this first class resuscitation and so forth. She says, no, why did you take him to the operating room without telling him about Jesus Christ first? That boy died without ever waking up. Okay, And so my point is, is no matter what we do, we may offer the best temporal healing in the entire world. And yes, if we're lucky, we'll get 70 years. But if we can introduce him to Christ, we've got an eternal healing. And never forget that even in situations where we don't have our resources, we don't have our CAT scans, we don't have our uh, monoclonal antibodies, we don't. the answer is we still have Jesus Christ. And that can make all the difference in eternity for these folks. Ampicillin and chloramphenicol are the drugs that we use for years, but the resistance is sky high. So unless you know your typhoid is there in your areas, acceptable, well, they're probably not good drugs. Unfortunately, this is actually what's still being given out in the clinic. So even though they got treated for their typhoid malaria, they got treated with drugs that don't really work as well. Uh, fluoroquinolones were an absolute blessing for about four weeks. And then uh, the resistance is skyrocketing for those as well. And so, really, we're getting to the point where third-generation cephalosporins is our only real option, and sometimes they're not available. So this is that boy, again, that same face. As you can see that he has been to the local national healer, and he's had some charms, and he's had a few other things uh, written on there, and turns out they didn't work any better than our chloramphenicol. And uh, so he ended up uh, being operated upon and found a typhoid and, and went home. We all know about typhoid Mary. And uh, one thing I will tell you is that uh, we don't operate on carrier states anymore. Uh, we don't need to do that. 
we only do it for the chronic cholecystitis part of it, but not the malaria part, I mean, not the typhoid uh, part of it as well. Um, there are some of these people that don't perforate, uh, but they will hemorrhage. And about 1% of them can have a life-threatening hemorrhage. Now, the only luxury that you have is it's really pretty easy to find on surgery. Most of us who are surgeons are terrified of operating on small bowel uh, hemorrhage because we can't ever find it. This is nice because they have these little punched out things along the pyres patches and you can actually find it uh, pretty easily. Uh, perforation, 1 to 5%. Most typhoids will survive, but 1 to 5% will perforate. And um, interestingly enough, you will still occasionally find a patient who apparently hasn't been sick for two weeks. He just comes in with a perforation. So keep that in mind as well. Uh, mortality for the perforation is very high and it's a combination of um, malnourishment and overwhelming sepsis that goes along with that as well. Um, how, do you, how do you know when to operate on a typhoid? If, if only one out of 5% need it, uh, how do you know? Well, the classic thing, of course, is just a series of abdominal films looking for pneumoperitoneum. And remember that occasionally you'll have to do a left lateral uh, with the right side up uh, so that you can see it over the liver because you won't see it on your other films. So uh, just every six hours. It's very much for those of you that are used to necrotizing enterocolitis and neonates. It's kind of that constant evaluation until they either get better or they get worse. Uh, if you have somebody who doesn't perforate but has a palpable mass, which basically means it's perforated, abscessed, and so forth, those need to be operated on. Uh, if they fail to get better, they're overwhelmingly septic, and your choice is death by sepsis or death by Bard-Parker. Uh, you end up having to do the Bard-Parker aspect of it as well. Um, and every now and then, uh, we use this steel CT, uh, where you just have to look because you can't figure out what in the world is going on because uh, CTs won't help you as well. Uh, these are some examples. On occasion, on this uh, your left, you can see massive pneumoperitoneum. That's pretty easy to pick up. Uh, on this one, it's just a relatively minor area over the right side of the liver. When you operate, what do you do? Um, about a third of them will have a single perforation. The Peyer's patch, of course, is a lymphoid uh, aggregation in the distal ileum on the anti-mesenteric side. And these people are basically having a hyperimmune response to the salmonella. That's why they perforate. And it literally gets such an overwhelming uh, response in the lymph lymphocytic tissue that it literally necroses. And so you have these nice little punch out. It looks like somebody took a, a paper punch out of it. And uh, if you have uh, one, two, or three... You just clean up the little edges a little bit and sew them shut, and they do just fine with that. Um, if you have more than three as a general rule, especially if they're close together, we'll just resect the whole loop because that's faster. Uh, what we're trying to do is get in and out of anesthesia. You have to understand that in Togo, for example, where this one was, uh, it has the highest mortality for anesthesia in the entire world, one out of every 185 cases. Okay? So part of the problem is here not only the best surgery, but you have to take into account who in the world is doing the anesthesia and getting them out of there is critical. Um, so you're going to do a loop resection. You're going to oversew them, whatever is quickest and fastest. Uh, then there is the whole religious belief about how much of a radical debridement you do with the peritoneum and how much irrigation you do. Um, and uh, there are various denominations there. Some people feel that it's the povidine iodine that's important and others that, you know, it's, it, it's all magic. Okay. Uh, but whatever you do, do well and, uh, and close with these people. Uh, from a surgical standpoint, um, as a general rule, we don't like to use retention sutures much anymore. But these kids are so malnourished that you might have to, uh, to keep that in mind. Uh, a lot of them will just plan, this looks so bad that I'm going to look back in here in 48 hours and do a second look operation and kind of keep cleaning up until the abscesses uh, control. But do remember, as a general rule, they'll tolerate 
an unnecessary operation much better than they tolerate uh, being wrong, okay, because by the time you make that diagnosis, you're in trouble. Typhoid cholecystitis, again, typhoid Mary, that's kind of where her uh, typhoid sits there, but there is such a thing as acute uh, uh, cholecystitis, and you don't really think about it because it usually occurs in kids. So a kid who has typhoid, who has persistent right upper quadrant tenderness and classic uh, cholecystitis, you'd say, gee, this is adult, this is probably cholecystitis. The answer is, it's cholecystitis. That's what it is, okay? And uh, you'll need to be operated on it. And because we don't think about it, often these uh, are some of the worst gallbladders because they've rotted on us by the time we figure it out. Um, here's another case study. This is an 8-year-old. Presents with abdominal swelling, uh, pain, and vomiting. The white count is 14,200, 6% eosinophilia. We're in eastern Kenya, if you care. The hemoglobin is 8.9. In our examination, you can feel a sausage-shaped right lower quadrant mass. And when you look at this x-ray, you see these funny little lines going through here. So what is this? Ascariasis. Okay. Uh, we'll see this relatively commonly. And uh, you'll see a little bit better on this x-ray over on that right side. You can see the lines better. Here is a worm in outline. If you've done an upper GI, sometimes you can see the upper GI of the worm as well inside the shadow. It's uh, interesting to see that. Now, ascariasis is a relatively common problem. And fortunately, they only cause trouble in two situations. One is when they migrate, and the other is when they don't. And so um, we'll look at it for a little bit. The migrating ascariasis, as you remember, that they will actually uh, come into the GI tract, and then they're going to go up into the lung, go up, go, and you swallow them again, and they go back down through this. So we have that whole cycle through the lung. And so Leffler syndrome, which is non-surgical uh, eosinophilic pneumonitis, uh, you can see in sometimes. Occasionally we'll have trouble with biliary pancreatitis. We'll see people who have migratory or, or at least um, relapsing uh, um, pancreatitis or relapsing uh, cholecystitis. And um, what's happening is the worm is crawling up the sphincter of Odie and then into the pancreas and into the, into the gallbladder as well. Uh, one of the things that's really frustrating is you've done a beautiful hand-sewn anastomosis. You're so pleased with yourself, you can't stand it. And all of a sudden, this stupid worm sticks his nose out through the anastomosis, okay? And so um, they, they don't like anesthesia. As soon as the anesthesia, they start migrating like crazy. So we'll see this in the operating room. Here's a case where a cholecystitis uh, there, and the worm is coming out of the common bile duct uh, as well. And when we opened up the... Um, gallbladder itself, you can see all the worms that were in there. So keep that in mind. The prevalence is very much uh, different. Uh, some locales, they see this all the time. We see it at Tenwick on a regular basis. I can go to the other mission hospitals, and they've never seen it at all. So it partly has to do with their stool habits, how they're, where they defecate, where their food is, how they clean themselves, uh, things that go along with it. Uh, a lot of times um, you'll find with these kids when they come in that they've developed this small bulb obstruction, and they'll say, well, what happened at school in the last day or two? Well, they treated us for worms. And so what happened is they actually took this heavy infestation, partly killed them, and now they've become an obstructing ball. So that's a, a exam uh, or a history part that's important. Physical examination is a lot of times in these skinny little kids, you can actually feel the ball of worms sitting in there. Plain x-ray, we've seen some of the changes there. Contrast studies. Now, it turns out that gastrographin, water-soluble contrast, which is often hard to come by, but if you have it, that actually is known to break up the worm bolus. And so it not only gives you a diagnosis, but will often uh, seem to have an effect on breaking it up. Ultrasound, depends how good you are. CAT scans are actually fairly accurate if you've got one as well. Um, 
if, there, if you see one of these patients and they're coming in and there's no peritonitis and you can rehydrate them or you put a nasogastric tube, you can wait a little bit. Now, what do you do? Some people feel strongly that you don't treat them at all, that that actually will cause more trouble. Others grab that mobendazole or albendazole and want to kill everything, okay? Uh, and then there are others that feel strongly that uh, we should actually use piperazine. Now, piperazine we don't have in the United States. It's what we give to our dogs uh, to kill their roundworms. Uh, and some countries in the third world have it and some don't have it. Uh, piperazine is, a, is not vermicidal. It's uh, paralytic. And so the thought is if you kill all the worms, they just lay there and they become a bolus, whereas if you just stun them, uh, they'll somehow find their way out the kid's butt, and the obstruction will go away. Uh, it's mostly a religious argument without strong scientific uh, component to it. So it depends on which church you go to on Sunday, which one you want to use. Uh, they all work reasonably well. Um, hypertonic saline solutions have been used by some folks. I don't have any real experience in there. Obviously, the real problem here is public health education, and that's what we've got to, to work on. Um, so when do you operate on them? If they're sick, you operate on them. If they're not sick, you have time to wait. And so it, it depends on whether they have peritonitis, whether they're toxic, how long it's going on, and whether the obstruction is getting worse or better. Okay? Uh, what do you do when you get there? Well, they always tell you to milk the worm bolus through the terminal ileum. Good luck with that. I, I've never been able to really been very successful with that because uh, usually it's so big compared to the terminal ileum, you really can't get anything to happen as well. So what you end up usually having to do is doing a transverse enterotomy. Now, the problem is the minute you do that, your wound infection rate and your complication rate starts to skyrocket because of the bacteria in the worms. And then you just take your little bowl and you take your little sponge forceps and you just sit there go fishing for worms until you can get them uh, empty as well. Uh, you have to use antibiotic prophylaxis if you've done that. And uh, you will have to be a very clo careful closure and a tight closure because literally the worms can go through there and perforate your your closure, which is a problem. About a third of these patients, statistically, will actually require a resection of the whole loop because it's gangrene or of questionable viability. It's volvulized, etc. Let's show me some pictures. Here's a, here's a kid. You can actually see the worm bolus on this x-ray right here. That's all the worms. You can feel that sausage area. And this is his uh, liter and a half of worms uh, after they were done. Uh, this is a classic example where we had the volvulus with it, full of worms, and had to resect that area in order to to make it work. 29-year-old male presents with a 24-hour history of marked distension. He has uh, super umbilical cramping pain. He's obstipated. He has a white count of 12,000, eosinophilia of 3%, no peritoneal signs. What's your diagnosis? Sigmoid volvulus. Okay, this is a rather classic x-ray for sigmoid volvulus. It's this uh, bent inner tube, horse's butt, uh, coffee bean, whatever you want to use in the right upper quadrant. Classic story. Volvulus can be in a very wide range. Here in the United States, uh, volvulus is a 70 and 80 year old disease. It's rarely before then, but in these folks, as early as uh, I've seen it in teens with uh, sigmoid volvulus. So it can be the entire range as well. More commonly in males for a reason that nobody understands, and it is the most common uh, GI volvulus. Uh, they have a very classic history of very rapid onset of pain. Uh, they come in sometimes with remarkable distension. Their belly's out there a mile. They haven't passed stool in a while or gas. Obviously, they're totally constipated uh, and obstipated. Uh, many of them, if you ask carefully, will give you a story because what they will have done is volvulized, and as they got halfway there, they hit a bump, and it 
twisted back, and so you'll get a story of this kind of uh, thing. And if it gets bad, of course, nausea and vomiting. Uh, your X-ray, your examination, uh, you've got an empty rectum uh, because they've already tried to pass this thing. Uh, massively distended. The X-ray we've already seen. Uh, CT and barium enema is uh, used if absolutely questionable, but in a classic case, what we really need to do is we rehydrate them. Uh, we give them antibiotics if necessary, and we consider endoscopy. Now, traditionally, this was always done with a rigid sigmoidoscope, and this is where you always wanted an intern because as you got the scope in, just before you got to the twist, you had them look and then tell them to move a little bit, and then everything explodes in their face. Um, but um, it's actually true that uh, flexible scopes have a slight statistical improvement in retention. So uh, either one will work, whatever you've got as well. If the sigmoidoscopic examination does not decompress it, then you would operate on them. If they came in with volvulate, I mean with peritonitis, you would operate on it. If it did work, what you're going to do is pass a rectal tube up past that point of obstruction, suture it to the skin in the perianal area. I would suggest local anesthesia. Start with a stitch in that, peri in that area and leave that tube for two or three days while you're getting them ready, getting them rehydrated, getting ready for surgery. Um, as a general rule, what we want to do is get them in good shape over the next two, three days and then consider a sigmoid colectomy. And if you can decompress it, sometimes you can do these with really small, short incisions over here as opposed to a major laparotomy. Some people want to go in and they say, well, gee, I'm not a surgeon. I'm just going to tack it somewhere. The success rate for that is abysmal. Uh, so don't do that. They need to be resected. Um, the, lower, the morbidity mortality rate is relatively low. As a general rule, we would not do a colostomy. We'd do a primary anastomosis. It's only if there's some particular reason that I don't have time to do it, they're too sick, or the, the tissues are bad. Cecovibulus is the other side of it. And this is usually somewhat a, a degree of uh, malrotation, a component with cecovibulus, where the cecum doesn't get fixed in the right lower quadrant the way it ought to be. Uh, they'll present with the same kind of story that we just had, except their x-ray looks different. It's really very non-diagnostic as a general rule. This is more common in females than in males for whatever reason. And gangrene is therefore, because it's a difficult diagnosis, is more common. Um, X-rays uh, will suggest some degree of obstruction. The answer is, yep, they're obstructed. But you don't see the classic coffee bean kind of thing in the other quadrant very often. Uh, barium enema is often where we have to go with this diagnosis. Uh, but without fluoroscopy, that's a real problem for us. What you're really looking for is that so-called bird's beak where the gut has been twisted so the barium is coming to a, a point like the beak of a bird. Uh, colonoscopy doesn't work real well in the, because it's unprepared and it's clear over on the right side. And that's uh, an issue for us. Uh, here's a kind of a more classic loop. You'll notice this loop is up here, but it doesn't have that same bent inner tube area. It tends to be in the right upper quadrant because of the way that uh, the malrotation puts it there. If you can decompress it alone, 50% of them will come back. So you have to do something with those as a general rule. Cecopexy, uh, putting some stitches in here is less damned than it is for sigmoid, but it's kind of a plus-minus thing. I personally think a right uh, hemicolectomy is the easiest and quickest way, and we'll fix that as well. Uh, if it is gangrenous, you have no choice. Uh, if it is something else, you can figure out some sort of cecopexy. And sometimes uh, people talk about cecostomy, just putting a tube in there as a pexy plus minus. I, I've seen some bad results with that, so I'm not as equivalent. Now, one of the things that's actually a little trickier and uh, considered to be relatively rare, except that you'd see this once a month or once a quarter, at least in Tenwick for some reason. And this is so-called compound volvulus, which means that not only does the sigmoid twist, 
but the small intestine gets in there and twists around it at the same time. So you have a large bowel obstruction and a small bowel obstruction, but the small bowel obstruction stops the passage of fluid and air so the large bowel doesn't look right, and so you end up with these screwball x-rays uh, and a patient that you're really not sure what's going on. And here, you know, you look at this and you see this big loop and you say, yeah, well, that could be a sigmoid bobulus, but then I see small intestinal stuff and here's some small intestine and what in the heck is this? Uh, that is a real problem. Um, the reality with these is is that uh, you have to have a high index of suspicion because gangrene is very high in these and you have to operate on them sooner than later. Uh, you don't want to detour a necrotic gut. And as a matter of fact, even as you're doing them, if you try to untwist them to figure out what's going on, you actually now have opened up the, vein, the veins and all the toxic stuff from the dead loop starts to go and these people can get extraordinarily septic in a very quick time. So what you literally end up having to do is you kind of leave this mess there and you cut here and you cut here and you cut here and you cut here and then lift the whole thing out and then you figure out how it all goes back together. Um, it's an interesting phenomenon. Here's an example of this. Uh, this is a loop that's actually decompressed at this point, but here's that small intestine that was wrapped around the base of it. And a very confusing picture. You can see, looking at that x-ray, the answer is, yeah, that looks like small bowel obstruction, but I'm not sure I know what this weird thing is in the, in the upper quadrant, and it's not really clear. Uh, again, a high index of suspicion. Uh, one thing you don't want to do here is, of course, remove, uh, is to do an ileostomy, because an ileostomy in Africa is a disease, not an operation, and uh, it's a real problem. So we try always to sew it back together, if at all possible. All right, another case, 24-year-old, 9-year-old. She's had 24 hours of anorexia, increasing abdominal pain, increasing fever. She has non-localizing rebound and guards in all quadrants. So what is your differential diagnosis for a 9-year-old with a diffuse peritonitis? Give me some diagnoses that would be rational. Primary peritonitis would be one possibility. What else? Early appendicitis. Uh, early appendicitis, normally you wouldn't have diffuse peritoneal signs, but that would be possible. What else? My point is you kind of run out pretty quick, don't you? And there's not a lot of things in there as well. And so um, this is a case of primary peritonitis. Um, it is seen in previously healthy children. It's very rare in the United States, but it is not at all uncommon there. And I don't know if it's because of uh, a degree of sepsis that's going on uh, on an occult basis. I don't know if it's an immunological, uh, nutritional uh, phenomenon, but we see it fairly often. It's usually in girls between the ages of 6 and 10, and uh, males are really uncommon, and we really don't know what causes it. But what we do know is that these people get sick very quickly, they have diffuse peritonitis. They have the fever, the leukocytosis that goes along with it. They really hurt. And you can't sometimes separate it from acute appendicitis uh, with, with rupture and diffuse peritonitis. And so we often end up operating on them. But when you look in the right lower quadrant, they have an absolutely normal appendix looking at you. And the only thing they often will have is a very milky kind of peritoneal uh, fluid that uh, is clearly pus. Uh, and so what you end up uh, doing with this is you end up uh, usually with an exploratory laparotomy, an appendectomy, and then you uh, look in the pelvis and you look in the terminal ileum and you look for every other thing you can think of and then you uh, end up calling it primary peritonitis. This is a case where gram stain is so important because it turns out the vast majority of these are either streptococcal or dipococcal, okay? And so that uh, as soon as you get a gram stain that shows you a, a mono uh, organism uh, on there, then this is most likely your diagnosis as well. 
Um, if you really suspect this, or the story isn't quite right, this is a fine example for laparoscopy. Take a quick look in there and just aspirate some of this stuff, do the culture. Or if you have ultrasound and you're really suspicious of it, and you can see a place where you can do an ultrasound-guided um, aspiration, do gram stain, and a lot of times you can avoid operating on these uh, folks as well. Uh, strep species is the most common. Uh, e. coli occasionally, occasionally mixed aerobes and anaerobes, but I think we're probably looking at different diseases presenting uh, differently. Now, if you're in an area where HIV is involved, that changes things. That's entirely different, but I'm talking about primary peritonitis in the adults. All right. Any questions? Any, any thoughts? Any particular unique problems that, that face you? So, you know, the things that we've talked about are not different than what we do, but we often won't think of those unless we think of those. I tell this, my students that you'll not make any diagnosis you don't think of. And uh, so we have to kind of be familiar with, and one of the most important things to do always when you're in a new place, if you find that they're on short term or something, is ask the people who have been around. And uh, sometimes that's the janitor. Janitor walks by and says, oh, it's obviously so-and-so, you know, and he'll bail you out uh, because they see it all the time. You don't. So that's an important concept to just to realize that um, you're not the only one in the room that's got some smarts. And a lot of times they have more experience than you do. Yes? There are a few. Uh, the biggest problem is is that um, nobody has enough cases to really get technically good at it from a, from a resident standpoint. Um, we also have a problem that CO2 is virtually impossible to get in some areas. We're actually using compressed air in one hospital. We have one of the largest series in the world using compressed air. Um, but it's a, it's a good option if you do it well enough. One of the problems we have with the laparoscopy in the developing world is it only worked in North America because we got all these people with gallbladders who need them out. Uh, when you go to a place where you don't have that simple, easy, reproducible procedure, it's actually very difficult to maintain the uh, uh, ability to do it. And, then, of course, the other issue is as the big companies have bought out all the reusable equipment, uh, you end up with uh, it being an operation that I can do an open appendectomy for literally $15 in supplies versus 250 in supplies. And so that becomes part of the factor as well. Any other questions? All right. Uh, I didn't yeah. see any CAT scan pictures. No. Um, we, we do have CAT scans in three of our mission hospitals now. Uh, they're increasingly uh, important. Uh, the problem is, is the family still can't afford them. And so one of the issues that you have is uh, in a charity institution, Every time that I give money away to one patient, it means I don't have money to treat another one. So uh, that's a very conscious decision. Not everybody gets a CAT scan. You have to make a very deliberate choice that if I have this resource, to whom and where should I do it? And it turns out that uh, you can actually diagnose appendicitis and some of these things without a CAT scan. I mean, and we'll talk about it later if you'd like. But anything else? Yes, sir. Yeah, as a general rule, um, they, they recommend that we, you get real close to the rectum, and proximally it doesn't matter so much. So, you know, first and foremost, you want to remove anything that is going to uh, allow the thing to revolvulize. That's a little embarrassing. Uh, so you, you want to get it, you know, relatively snug. You want to get relatively close to the peritoneal 
edge, and the rest is how does it fit down through there. Now, the nice thing about most valvuluses, and the reason they're valvulized, is they actually have an omega mesentery, where this end comes close and this end comes close, and then there's this whole thing off a relatively narrow area. So as a general rule, you can actually do them through a pretty small muscle-splitting incision once they're decompressed and kind of do the whole thing on the outside and drop it back in. Yes, sir? Most places. Um, whether they're in good repair is another old question, but increasing ultrasound is by far the most important thing you can do. And, you know, if you want, you can actually, through uh, World Medical Mission, they'll help you buy one of the nicest ones for about 15000 You can take it and leave it, and they would call you blessed. Okay? So. But, but it is one of the more valuable things that we can get for folks. Yeah. Yes? Uh, you know, probe, probe, dia- uh, probe uh, hurts and all that stuff is, is part of the whole factor with that. But, but ultrasound has changed everything. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs>